Our speaker for this morning is Craig Johnson. Uh, he has actually preached here before, about five years ago. How, how many of you are here when he preached here last? Oh, wow. Only a few of us. That's great. You got a whole new crowd, Craig. This is great. Um, so Craig uh, grew up uh, or spent his high school years here in Farragut and ended up attending the Master's Seminary in California. During that time, he met his wife of 22 years, Tiffany, while there. He pastored a church in New Hampshire for seven years and then was sent out by that church to plant another church in New Hampshire where he pastored that church for the next 13 years. I believe one of those churches was the Crossway Bible Church, wasn't it? And it was the, the name of the church where Rebecca uh, kind of submitted that name for our church. So kind of, you know, there's a connection there with where we got our name. So um, he is the brother of Rebecca Walker, who's a member here at Crossway. And he has six kids, aged 18 through 6, Silas, Mercy, Justice, Ruby, Matthias, and Knox. They, their family is becoming um, members of Grace Community Church in Maryville, and he is currently waiting to see where the Lord would have him minister next. So you can pray for him as he uh, seeks the Lord's face in that regard. Um, please have your ears open and your hearts uh, ready to receive the word of God. Craig, please come and minister to us this morning. Good morning, church. Was I supposed to use those steps over there? It's like a big step, but that's what it's for, though, right? All right, no one uses it. Well, I'm delighted to be here with you. Uh, it's exciting to see what the Lord has done, uh, bringing growth, uh, and exciting to hear about the property. And we'll be praying for you about that as you go through that due diligence. And we'll trust the Lord's uh, provision for you. Um, it's exciting. Well, I invite you to take your copy of the scriptures and turn with me to Mark chapter 8. Mark chapter 8, we'll begin our reading in verse 22. Mark chapter 8, verse 22. And you can follow along as I read. This is the word of the living God. The text says, and they came to Bethsaida, and that's referring to Jesus with his disciples. They came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village, and after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, do you see anything? And he looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored, and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi, and on the way he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? And they told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. 
and he warned them to tell no one about him. So Mark, this gospel writer, he writes to introduce us to Jesus, the Savior King. Uh, The book can be divided into two halves. The first eight chapters, we see the King walking among us. He's teaching. He's doing miracles. The second half of the book, we see Jesus who uh, is going to the cross because it's there at the cross that he will give his life as a ransom for sinners so that all who rely on him for salvation will be saved and will be brought into his kingdom. We see him go to the cross and then rise again, thereby securing victory over sin and over death. Well, right now, this passage that we're looking at this morning comes at the end of that first half. In this first half, Jesus has been primarily in Galilee. It's the public ministry of Jesus. And as we see him engage in ministry before the crowds and the multitudes, what we see are that there's larger and larger crowds that are following him. At the same time, we see increasing opposition from the Pharisees, uh, political opposition. And the whole time... There are his disciples watching him do these miracles, watching him teach, hearing him teach, seeing this opposition, and they are really struggling. They are struggling to really understand who who Jesus is, and they're struggling to trust him. They've spent a significant amount of time with him. In the several paragraphs that uh, precede uh, the one we're looking at this morning, we see Jesus with his disciples outside of Galilee. He's, he's taking a break from the Jewish, from being in the Jewish territory and moving out to the Gentile territory. And he's been spending more and more time alone with his disciples, teaching them and training them. And at the beginning of chapter 8, we see Jesus work an incredible miracle, the feeding of the 4,000. Right? And that's not, just, that's not all the people, that's just the men. Then there's women and children added to that. He's feeding a a massive number of people, and he's showing himself to the crowds to be the compassionate provider. And he wants his disciples to see this too. Well, immediately after that incredible miracle, Jesus and his disciples hop into a boat together. And they cross the Sea of Galilee, going to Dalmanutha. And as soon as they uh, reach shore and tie up the boat, Immediately they encounter the Pharisees. The Pharisees are gunning for Jesus. They make a beeline for him, and they're coming out to test him. Show us a sign that we may know that you really are from God, that you're the real deal. But Jesus, he won't have it. They've already seen so much. Their problem is not a lack of evidence. Their problem is hardness of heart, unbelief. You've seen enough. Jesus said. Well, the disciples would have been sobered by that experience as they got back into the boat. And you know what? As soon as they hop back into the boat, they're hungry. And they are thinking, what are we going to do for food? And then they realize that they have only one loaf of bread. And you know how their, what their response was? They start arguing with each other. They're anxious. Oh, no, we're hungry, but we've only got one loaf of bread, right? And you know how it works, uh, how your eyes can look at a loaf and divide it up into sections. How many people are there? How much do we have? Right? And they start to get pretty concerned. Who, Who forgot to bring the bread? 
Now we're, now we're stuck. And Jesus sees this and, oh, what a grievous sight this is to him. And he says to him, guys, we just talked to the Pharisees. And, they are, and you've seen it. They're completely blind to who I am. And now, here you are. You've just seen me before the multitudes feeding them with how many loaves of bread was it? Okay, and how many baskets of bread were left over? And I'm right here. I'm right here with you. Do you still not see who I am? He's grieved by this, and he warns them. Don't be like the Pharisees. And what do they do? They hear this warning, and immediately they go right back to talking about the bread. That's nice, Jesus. Now, guys, what are we going to do about this bread situation? We've only got one loaf. How in the world can we make a stretch? Jesus asked some questions in verse 18. Having eyes, do you not see? And having ears, do you not hear? Are you guys blind? Are you guys deaf? Well, we all know what that's like, though, don't we? To have that kind of blindness. Yes, as Christians, we believe in Christ. We know who he is. He's the Savior of the world. He went to the cross. He suffered in our place. We know what it's like to see who he is, but yet still to struggle to see him each day. We find ourselves asking anxiously, what are we going to do? We only have one loaf. How is this going to work? And in those moments, we really are blind to the love of Christ for us. We're blind to his compassion. We're blind to his power, to his wisdom, to the work that he is doing in us, to the work that he's doing around us. And so we find ourselves feeling, at times, in these moments, hopeless, discouraged, anxious, fearful, angry, just like the disciples. Well, Jesus has an encouraging message for them and for us. And that's our passage this morning. What do we do when we realize that we still have spiritual blindness in us? Though we know Christ, we know that we don't clearly perceive him in our troubles. Well, Mark, writing under inspiration of the Holy Spirit, Mark announces gospel to us. He preaches Christ to us. He preaches the gospel to us. You know what we need? We who struggle with spiritual blindness, we need the great physician. And Mark lets us learn from the great physician. And so we see here in our text this morning two prescriptions for those suffering from spiritual blindness. Two prescriptions for those suffering from spiritual blindness. And these come right from the great physician. He's teaching his disciples, and he's teaching us too. Here's the first prescription. By the way, did you guys get, that, get the note sheet? I, know you, I don't think you normally use note sheets. Usually everything's on the projector, but uh, did you guys get note sheets? Who has a paper note sheet? There's some. All right, good. You got them. All right, so here's the first prescription. Trust Jesus to give sight and then more and more sight to your blind eyes. Trust Jesus to give sight and then more and more sight to your blind eyes. 
Let's read again verses 22 through 26. Verse 22 says, And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? And the blind man looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. Then again he laid his hands on his eyes. And he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. And he sent him to his home saying, Don't even enter the village. Now this miracle is startling, isn't it? It's weird. Jesus encounters a blind man and he, and he spits on his eyes. Now that's strange. He spits on his eyes and then he touches him and then asks the question, do you see anything? Are you wondering if it worked, Jesus? And the guy answers with a weird answer. I can see people. They look like trees that are walking around. Right? These are ants. Have you guys seen Lord of the Rings lately? You can just imagine what the disciples were thinking. Jesus, uh, what is going on here? Are you losing your power? Are you losing your mojo? I mean, how, how is this going to work? Well, you know what, Jesus? It's a good thing we've took, taken this guy outside the village. We're out here. There's not that many people. This is our, this will be our little secret, okay? Just touch him again. I'm sure it will take the second time. Maybe they were thinking, you know what, Jesus? We have seen you work so many miracles, whatever. We know you can do it. We're not losing faith in you. This is the only recorded example of a healing performed by our Lord that was not complete immediately. It's the only one. And it's interesting that none of the other gospel writers include this account. Mark includes it. Mark is writing to persuade us that this is the Messiah. He's the Son of God. Now, why in the world would Mark include this? This seems like one to leave out. Look, it happened outside the village, let's just keep it outside the village. Why here and why now in this gospel? Certainly, Jesus, certainly he did the healing uh, this way on purpose, right? And certainly Mark knows that. The disciples, if they didn't know it immediately, they came to know that Jesus did it this way on purpose. Of course he can heal immediately. He can heal from a distance, right? Go home. Your daughter is alive. And you remember that lady who came up, snuck up behind him and, and touched him, and she was healed, right? His power is not hard to come by. So why did Jesus do it this way? Why did he do it in stages? Well, Jesus is teaching his disciples a lesson that they needed to know. The miracle is a kind of metaphor for the way that he works, not just with physical healing of blindness, but the healing of spiritual blindness as well. Jesus is teaching his disciples. You remember, he just asked them 
Do you have eyes, but you cannot see? And now with this miracle, it's Jesus' way of saying, sometimes when you can see, you can't see everything, and you can't see it all at once. This is what you guys are like. You look around, and you can see a lot. You, you can. You, you aren't blind like you used to be. You can see. But right now, you guys are demonstrating that things are still pretty blurry for you. You look around, and you see people that look like trees walking. Sin is blinding. It's blinding for us. And there's pockets of sin in all of us. That means that there is at least a partial blindness in all of us. And our hope is that Christ will be patient with us and kind and gracious. And that he will continue to teach us and encourage us and give, give us grace until we see him more clearly. And so Jesus is asking them, are you blind? Do you still not perceive? Do you still not see? Well, guys, I want you to trust me. I want you to trust me. Because I'm not done with you yet. I'm not giving up on you. It's heartbreaking that you are arguing over this bread while I'm right, right there with you in the boat. It's heartbreaking that you cannot see me, but I'm not giving up on you. This is the way it is with all of us. We need to trust Jesus to enable us to see him more clearly. We trust him to do two things for us, right? Jesus does two things for us. First, Jesus touches us. Jesus touches us. Look at verse 22. We read, And they came to Bethsaida, and they brought a blind man to Jesus and implored him to touch him. Now, this is the first specific instance of a blind person being brought to him for help. Now, the rabbis would have had nothing to do with this man. I mean, he's, he's cursed by God, unclean. But Jesus wasn't like them. Verse 23. Look at verse 23. It says, Taking the blind man by the hand, he brought him out of the village. And after spitting on his eyes and laying his hands on him, he asked him, Do you see anything? Now, almost every time that Jesus healed someone, he did it publicly, openly, so that multitudes could, could witness what he was doing. Why is he doing this in private? In part, I think, it's because this is for the disciples. right? He's teaching them a lesson. But Jesus knows this man's personality, the personality of this blind man. And perhaps it would, be, would have been painful for this man to be healed in public, and so he led him out of the village. He took him by the hand. Like I said, this is one that the rabbis never would have touched. But Jesus takes him by the hand. Jesus' response here shows his extraordinary care. We see here a wonderful sensitivity in the way Jesus cares for people. And it showed the disciples that Jesus, in helping them, would gently take them by the hand and lead them on. It's heart-wrenching for Jesus to see them arguing freaking out about the bread when he's right there with them. But Jesus would not become exasperated with them and treat them roughly. He would patiently, lovingly, and gently care for them. 
And Mark tells us also that he spat on the man's eyes. Now, frankly, that seems pretty difficult, uh, at least for those of us who don't practice spitting with precision. Well, I don't think Jesus did this from a distance. Uh, Jesus laid his hands on him. I think what happened is Jesus pulled him in close and spit on his eyes. This is something that this blind man had never experienced before. This kind of anyone being close to him. I mean, he would have been able to, to, to smell Jesus. Jesus was so close to him, touching him. These are invasive acts, aren't they? I mean, Jesus is really invading his personal space. And this is a way uh, of communicating to this man, a way for Jesus to communicate to this man, I know about your problem. And I'm giving you and your problem my full attention. I will take care of it, and I will take care of you. And it was also a way of communicating to him, I think, uh, you are healed by my life. It's as if he's picturing how his power works. The life of Christ is touching these dead organs and transforming them and giving them life. And that's always how Jesus does it. That's how Jesus does it when he gives us spiritual sight. He doesn't just stand from a distance and announce that we are healed. He doesn't just predict. No, Christian. When he gave you sight, it was an intimately personal thing. He touched your dead soul with his life-giving spirit. Life is found in connection with Christ. We must be connected to him by faith. You remember what Jesus says in John 15, verse 5. I am the vine, you are the branches. He who abides in me and I in him, he bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. We are saved by an intimate connection with Jesus Christ. Well, Jesus then does something absolutely remarkable. He asks him in verse 23, do you see anything? Did Jesus not know? We see this kind of thing happen from time to time as we read the gospel accounts of the life of Christ. He asks questions and oftentimes we think, doesn't he know? And what we see again and again is that Jesus asks questions not really for himself. He asks questions for the sake of others. So Jesus asked this question, do you see anything? It was important for the man to assess where he was at. And it was important for the disciples to hear where this man was at. Jesus had asked these disciples virtually the same thing. Up in verse 17, Jesus, aware of this, of their arguments, said to them, why do you discuss the fact that you have no bread? Do you not see or understand? Right, and what are they doing at that point? They're evaluating. 
What, what is it that I see? Am I not seeing something? At least those are the questions they're supposed to be asking. Two things Jesus does for us. First, he touches us. And second, Jesus opens our eyes. Jesus opens our eyes. Look at verse 24. The text says, and he looked up. And this, again, is referring to the man who was blind. He looked up and said, I see men, for I see them like trees walking around. So this man could see. Now, those three words, he looked up, they, they don't just mean that he tilted his head back and looked up. No, it's one word in the Greek, anablepo, and it's translated differently in chapter 10, verses 51 through 52, where a blind man is healed, and it's translated there, he regained his sight. So that's what you could translate here. He regained his sight. There was a healing. He was blind, but now he could see. But his vision was not sharp. There was not a clear focus. It was indistinct, imperfect sight. Look at verse 25. <clears throat> we read, Then again he laid his hands on his eyes, and he looked intently and was restored and began to see everything clearly. Jesus touched him a second time. And then Mark notes three things that happened. You see that? Verse 25. First, he says that he looked intently. The English Standard Version says he opened his eyes. More literally, it means he saw through. He saw through. He could see, as it were, through the fog to see things clearly. Mark says his sight Secondly, was restored. The idea is that it was restored to the ideal. This is the way the Creator intended the eyes to work. Perfect vision. He sees perfectly. And then, thirdly, Mark notes, he began to see everything clearly. And that means that he could focus on things and distinguish between things. His healing was complete. Mark says it in three different ways to make the strong point, Jesus is able to get this man to the finish line, leaving nothing to be desired. Yet, he did it in stages. Why did he do it in, in, in two stages? Some might suggest it was because of this man's unbelief. If you only had stronger faith, then it would have worked the first time. But there's nothing in the text to indicate anything like that, Right? Was it because this man was a particularly difficult case? Hardly. Jesus has no problem healing. It was because this miracle, like others, was a sign. To the disciples, an object lesson. The disciples had spiritual vision, but it needed to be healed and sharpened. They weren't in total darkness like unbelievers. But he was showing his disciples that that he was, right now, even in the performance of this miracle, he was gently leading his disciples, taking them by the hand. He was giving them greater sight. He was making things more and more clear to them. And they were learning. The one who can heal blindness, not just physical blindness, the one who can heal spiritual blindness is Jesus. It's Jesus Christ. Only Jesus keeps on opening your eyes to him. And Jesus is saying to them and to you, if I just touch you, 
you can see. You need me. And I will do it. Trust me. Now, so what does all this mean for us? Well, there's five applications for us here I want to highlight. First, recognize that it's possible for you to have spiritual sight, but to be partially blind at the same time. Recognize that it's possible for you to have spiritual sight, but to be partially blind at the same time. You can see, but you see people that look like trees that are walking. This is, of course, where the disciples were. These guys had left everything to follow Jesus. That was amazing that they did that. But Jesus says, but you guys don't see clearly. And I want you guys to know that. There really is a degree of blindness there. You really are in a place of need. You really do need me. That's why you're so concerned about the bread. Jesus says, you guys worry and fear and argue. You guys are are agitated. But your problem is not a lack of bread. Your problem is a lack of spiritual sight. You don't need more bread to get your heart rate to go down. You need greater spiritual sight. Second application, be thankful for your sight. Be thankful for your sight. The disciples should have realized in that moment, even though they were learning of a partial spiritual blindness that that was in them, they should have realized that they did have sight and the reason why they had sight was because Jesus had touched them. That's why they could see. That's why they loved him. That's why they followed him. That's why they loved his teaching. Jesus had given them sight. And the same is true for you. If you see who Jesus is, it's because he touched you. And you should rejoice and give thanks to him. So be thankful for your sight. Third application. Assess yourself and admit your blindness. Assess yourself and admit your blindness. Take stock of the partial blindness that's in you. What saved this man, this blind man, was his honesty. I can see, but honestly, and this may sound a little bit strange to you guys, but I see people, but they look like trees that are walking. I know that sounds silly, but it's true. And maybe you believe in the doctrine of the Trinity. You could talk a long time about doctrines of Scripture. But maybe you really struggle with worry, anxiety, with fear, with anger. You're too concerned about bread. You feel, maybe maybe you feel generally shortchanged when it comes to things in your life these days. And maybe it's not anxiety, it doesn't manifest as anxiety, But maybe it's more of grumpiness. Nothing is going my way. Not getting what I need. Maybe maybe it manifests as a form of anger. Irritation. Bitterness. Maybe just flat out being ticked off about the way things are. And so contentment, joy, and peace elude you. And you talk like it's because your spouse doesn't treat you the way that he or she should. Or your parents don't treat you the way that they should. Or you don't have enough money. Or it's because of your boss. 
All different ways of saying, we don't have enough bread. I don't have enough bread. But the problem is not the bread. The problem is spiritual blindness, partial spiritual blindness. And so assess yourself. Admit your blindness. Jesus is asking you, do you see? What do you see? What can you see? Fourth application, don't lose hope. Don't lose hope. For, for the disciples here at this time, what Jesus is doing and what he's saying, it is a rebuke. I mean, he's telling them there's spiritual blindness, but it's not just a rebuke, it's also an encouragement. You may at times think, if, I, if I'm truly a Christian, why, how can I be so afraid? How can I have such thoughts? How can I do the things that I've done? And the answer is that, though you can see, you see people like trees walking. And so there's an encouragement here. And it's, it's the truth that Christ is not done with you. Christ is not done working in you. Don't lose hope. Fifth application. Submit yourself to the Lord for further treatment. Submit yourself to the Lord for further treatment. He will use his word to give you greater sight. He will use adversity to give you greater sight. You remember what Job said? At the end, after all of those trials, Job 42 verse 5, he says to the Lord, I have heard of you by the hearing of the ear, but now my eyes see you. He will also use the body of Christ. Right? As you become knit together with other believers and you live your life with them and serve with them, God will use them to teach you new things and to open your eyes to more and more truth. Sometimes a Christian becomes unteachable for reasons of self-protection. His spiritual vision remains imprecise because he's not willing to admit a particular fault or a particular sin. Maybe he's uncomfortable with particular doctrines. Maybe he's uncomfortable with or afraid of a particular application of the truth to his life. And he actually prefers to see people like trees walking. Because the truth is so painful, too painful for him. I've heard it said to me at times, um, look, I, I don't even want to hear what you have to say. You're going to tell me that all of my trials are from the Lord but that's just too painful of a thought for me. I don't even want to hear it. And what a person is saying in that situation is, it's too painful for me to see clearly. I would rather see people like trees walking. Let's pray like the psalmist in Psalm 119, verse 18. Open my eyes that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. Well, the verse 26 in our text, 
Look at verse 26. It says, And he sent him to his home, saying, Do not even enter the village. Do not even enter the village. Now, these statements, we see these also from time to time in the Gospels, and it's intriguing, isn't it? Uh, why? Why did he say, don't even enter the village? Why? It's because he's not a cheap miracle worker. He didn't want him going into the village and telling everybody, and everyone sees it, and then they start to think of Jesus as a cheap miracle worker. He wanted to play it down a little bit. He was headed for the cross to die in the place of sinners, to absorb the wrath of God that we deserve for our sin. And he would not reduce himself to a cheap miracle worker. Now, it's a little bit comical how he says it here. Usually he says, don't tell anyone. And if we read reading through the Gospel of Mark, we'd see that. Don't tell anyone. Don't tell anyone. And what do people do after he says that? They go and tell everyone. And so now it's like he's saying, okay, don't even go back to the village. Just stay out here because I know you're not going to be trustworthy if you're like all the others. Now, I find this uh, comment exciting. I find it exciting, and I love it. I love it. Because what he's saying is, I am not about, yeah, being a cheap miracle worker. I am going to go to the cross, and I will not let anything get in my way. And the reason why he needed to go to the cross is because of our spiritual blindness. Because he went to the cross and he he paid for my spiritual blindness. And he purchased at the cross my spiritual eyesight. And so when we read this kind of comment over and over again, we should rejoice that he was determined to do everything that was necessary to rescue us from our blindness. And he has done everything necessary. He has done it. And if you have blindness, I mean, if you, have, if you had blindness, but now you have spiritual sight, it's because he went to the cross and suffered for your blindness and purchased your eyesight. So rejoice in him. Delight in him. Worship him. Because he is worthy. Two prescriptions we're looking at. From the great physician, for those suffering from spiritual blindness, we've seen the first one, right? Verses 22 to 26, trust Jesus to give sight and then more and more sight to your blind eyes. And then second, the second prescription, squint and strain to see Jesus clearly. Squint and strain to see Jesus clearly. We see this in verses 27 through 30. Let's read. Look at verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples, to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? They told him, saying, John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, but others, one of the prophets. And he continued by questioning them, But who do you say that I am? Peter answered and said to him, You are the Christ. And he warned them to tell no one about him. So he had just told them, you have spiritual blindness. And he told them through that miracle, but I will take care of it. And so what do you guys need to do first? Squint and strain to see me. That's the point of this little conversation that he has with them. Having spiritual sight 
does not consist mainly of being able to understand various doctrines of Scripture. Yeah, the doctrine of the Trinity. Yeah, the doctrine of uh, eschatology, last things, and end times. It doesn't consist mainly of being able to remember particular Bible verses and being able to quote them. Having your eyes opened to the truth means, first and foremost, that you see Jesus. It means, this means that your spiritual sight is really measured by your perception of Jesus. How, how you see or perceive his character, his glory, his word, his work, his worth. Do you see the worth of Jesus Christ? That's the most important thing about you. That is the truest measure of your spiritual sight. Do you see the worth of Jesus Christ? The most important question to get right is, who is Jesus? Mark tells us in this gospel that Jesus is the Christ. He says that in chapter 1 and verse 1. Jesus is the Christ. But as we keep reading the gospel of Mark and, and listen to all the characters and what they're saying, no one seems to get it. Jesus is the Messiah. He demonstrates this. His, we see it, his, his grace, we see his power, we see his authority. But in all of it, he is confusing to people. He forgives sin. And then he eats meals and, with tax collectors and sinners. I mean, who is this guy? No one seems to really see him. The disciples found themselves asking about Jesus' true identity. They're caught in a raging storm, you remember, Mark chapter 4. And then with a word... Jesus makes the waves calm. He makes the surface of the water like glass. Just like that, with a word. And the disciples ask the question, Mark 4, 41, who is this? Even the wind and the waves obey him. And so here, Jesus brings up the topic again. I've challenged you guys to consider your, your own blindness. I've taught you, um, and I've given you sight, and I'm giving you more and more sight. Now, he says, this is what you are to focus on first. You want more spiritual sight? Here's what to do first. And he asked them two questions. Two questions. Jesus asked the disciples first, who do people say that I am? Who do people say that I am? Look at verse 27. Jesus went out along with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he questioned his disciples, saying to them, Who do people say that I am? So Jesus is talking with his disciples in transit to Caesarea Philippi. Uh, it's about 25 miles north of Bethsaida. And he uses this time wisely, of course. And he's talking with his disciples. He asks an important question. What matters most, guys, is my identity. He wants to find out what they think, but he starts with an easier question. Who do people say that I am? What's the word on the street? What are you guys hearing? 
Verse 28, they told him, saying, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. But others, one of the prophets. These are the common answers that the disciples were hearing. Some said, maybe he's John the Baptist. Now, by this point in the story, John the Baptist had died. And so they were thinking that maybe this is John the Baptist brought back to life. I mean, he, he, reminds, he reminds me of John the Baptist. I mean, you remember how John would, would preach with such authority and such power? I mean, he said some bold things, some hard things, calling people to repentance. It was almost like he was, he was telling them that they weren't to follow him. It was going to be too much. It would cost too much. And yet then somehow the crowds that followed him got bigger and bigger. Maybe this is John the Baptist. Come back. Come back to life. Others were saying, no, I think this might be Elijah. Elijah, you remember the prophet of old, one of the chief prophets of the Old Testament? While most prophets didn't do miracles, Elijah did. Plus, Elijah, you remember, didn't die. There's a chariot that came down, picked him up, took him, took him back up in the air. And then you've got that prediction in Malachi chapter 4, verse 5, before the great and dreadful day of the Lord, before it comes, Elijah will come and he'll prepare the way. Some thought, maybe this is Elijah. He's back. He's preparing the way. And others didn't want to get too specific. I don't know exactly who he is, but he's definitely a prophet. I mean, have you heard him speak? What authority he has. When he speaks, we know we are hearing from God. That's pretty impressive, isn't it? I mean, if I said, hey, who do you think I am? And you said, uh, well, we've seen the way that you talk, the way that you handle yourself with people. I'm thinking maybe John the Baptist, maybe Elijah. I mean, I'd be pretty pleased with that answer. But in Jesus' case, obviously they were way off the mark. They recognized a lot of things about, that were true about Jesus, but in all three guesses, they're thinking of Jesus only as a forerunner, only as a precursor to something bigger and better. All of those only prepare the way and announce the Messiah. And if you look at Jesus and you think he's only a pointer and not the point, then you've missed the point. And Jesus now asks another question. A second question he asks the disciples in verse 29, who do you say that I am? Who do you say that I am? Verse 29, he continued by questioning them, but who do you say that I am? And he asked us too. Who do you say that I am? It's not enough to give your sense of what the popular opinion is. Jesus is not particularly interested in that. He wants to know, he's asking you, who do you say that I am? It's not good enough to thoughtlessly parrot what you read in books or what your parents say or what your friends say or what you grew up hearing in the church. That's not enough. Jesus says, you've told me what everyone else is saying. How about you guys? Have you finally perceived my identity? Or am I still just a dim, blurry, walking tree to you? Second part of verse 29 says, Peter answered and said to him, you are the Christ. So he's asked the group, 
Who do you say that I am? Peter, as a spokesman for the group, answers. He knows Jesus was not merely a prophet, but he was the promised Christ. Matthew, the gospel writer, includes that Peter also said, you're the son of the living God. No human had ever gotten this right before. People had been impressed with Jesus. People called him teacher. They called him Lord or Master. Some of them thought of him as an incredible military ruler, but no one had called him Christ. Peter's confession is is deeper and more potent than you may think. This is, of course, not Jesus' last name, right? Joseph and Mary Christ. They have their son, Jesus Christ. No. Everyone before this had called him just Jesus. No one had put Christ with that. This is profound. What is is Peter saying? Well, the word Christ means anointed one. It's the translation of the Hebrew word for Messiah. The Old Testament had three groups of people who were anointed, prophets, priests, and kings. And all at different times anointed for their tasks and their office. But no one did all three. Some filled two of those offices, Melchizedek, Moses, David. Remember, David was a king and a prophet. But Christ would fill all three roles. Peter says, you are the Christ, the anointed one. What was the messianic expectation of first century Palestinians, Uh, he would be the the Messiah, the anointed one would be the son of David, come in the line of David to be a ruler. He would come from God and act on behalf of God. He would usher in a new day, the age to come, the kingdom would arrive. He would be the king of the Jews. He would fight Israel's battles, overthrow their enemies. And so Peter at least had all those things in mind. He's saying a lot more than that. He is just a good teacher, a prophet. But as we go along, if we were to continue reading in in the Gospel of Mark, we'd see that Peter doesn't get a lot. His eyes are open, but he won't see everything all at once. He doesn't quite understand it. If we were to grade his confession here, I think we would say, Peter, you get an A. I mean, this, no one has ever seen this before. This is amazing. Unbelievable. Definitely an A. But what he understands about his confession is, I don't know, maybe give him a C. He would do much better on a fill-in-the-blank test than he would do with an essay test about who, who Jesus is. And I think if we could give Peter some advice at this point in their story, we might say, look, Peter, on an essay test, less is more, okay? Uh, you'll be digging yourself a big hole real fast. Keep your words few. This, uh, Peter at this point was a little overconfident, and he basically goes on to ask for the essay test, and he flunks. Because right after this passage, Jesus, in the next two chapters, three times he tells the disciples, I am going to the cross. I am going to suffer. Peter does not do well with that. You remember what happens the first first occasion. Jesus tells him, I'm going to the cross, and Peter rebukes Jesus. It's hard to fit that 
with this awesome confession. And then, of course, Jesus calls him Satan. So he flunks. He sees it. But there's so much that he doesn't see. Nonetheless, his confession is astounding. This was no easy confession for an uneducated first century Palestinian fisherman. And what drove Peter to this conclusion? I mean, it was not too long ago. This man was a rather unremarkable fisherman. He got up in the morning, went down to the shore of Galilee, uh, checked his nets, checked the boat, got out into the water, brought his catch back to the shore, took it to the market to sell, and then prepared stuff for the next day to do the same thing all over again. He had no idea where his life was going, no idea of how he would be changed. What led him to the point where he is able to make this confession of the identity of Jesus? Matthew tells us, Matthew 16, verse 17, Jesus answered him, Blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. Anyone in the room, anyone in the world who has confessed Jesus as the Christ and truly meant it from their heart has done so because God himself worked a miracle to give faith and to give sight. If your eyes are open to it, it's because of God's grace. Undeserved favor from God. You've been enabled to recognize the pearl of great price. You can see that Jesus is the great treasure. And if God never gives you any other blessing for the rest of your days on the earth, you will still have every reason in the world to spend the whole, your whole life proclaiming his glorious mercy to anyone who will listen. Because the greatest blessing a human being can ever receive is the blessing of seeing and knowing Jesus Christ. You are the Christ. The whole story of redemption can be summarized in those words. What does it mean to confess you are the Christ? When you confess you are the Christ, you're saying you, Jesus, are the one empowered by the Holy Spirit to live a perfectly righteous life. And then to go to the cross to suffer in my place for my sin, propitiating the wrath of God, turning the wrath of God away from me, satisfying the wrath of God by absorbing his wrath yourself. You are the Christ, the anointed king, God's appointed king. Having been raised from the dead by your father, you are right now at the father's right hand where you reign over everything for your people, for the church, for me. You are ruling in the midst of your enemies, as predicted in Psalm 110. Ruling right in the middle of your enemies, and one day you will come again to defeat your enemies, and then reign on the earth forever. When we proclaim Jesus is the Christ, we proclaim more than a system of redemption or a plan of salvation. We proclaim a redeemer, a redeemer. And his name is Christ Jesus, the Son of God. So Jesus says, you guys understand who I am, okay? What now? Well, the first thing that I'm going to need you guys to do is to keep quiet about it. Right? Look at verse 30. And he warned them to tell no one about him. Why? Why on earth? We want to shout it from the rooftop. 
But no. I think there's at least a couple reasons. First, Jesus knew that people would not understand what the disciples were talking about. People had many wrong conclusions, wrong notions of what the Messiah would or should be. Before it's announced like that, they need to see the nature of the Messiah. They need to see his suffering. The day would come when he would say, all authority has been given to me. Now go, tell all the nations. Right? Second reason, though, I think, Jesus knew the disciples didn't know enough about what they were talking about. And this prohibition to tell others is, is, a, is Jesus' commitment to keep teaching them. Basically, Peter's confession was, I see a mighty oak walking around. But he didn't understand the full measure of who Jesus was or is. You are the Christ. So where do you stand with this confession? In regard to this confession. In regard to Jesus Christ. Is this all someone else's religion? Or do you say in your heart, Jesus, you are the Christ. You're the Savior King. Your eternity depends on getting that answer right. And Christian, do you live this confession? Where in your life does peace and contentment and joyful obedience elude you? In those areas and in those ways, squint and strain to see Jesus more clearly. Do it prayerfully, trusting in him to open your eyes. And remember, he is patient, he is gentle, and he will do it. Peter says, 2 Peter 1, 2. It took a while for his eyes to be opened all the way or much further. And now he says to believers in Asia, 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2, may grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord. Let's pray. Our Father, we thank you for giving us your word. Thank you for uh, giving us a great Savior and a great King, the Lord Jesus Christ. We rejoice in our Savior King this morning. We rejoice that he is so patient with us, with us who struggle with blindness and unbelief. We thank you that he is patient, that he is gentle. We thank you for the assurance that the work that you've started in us you will complete. You are faithful. And so we put ourselves in your hands and we cry out to you, asking you to, to save us out of our blindness and to show us Jesus Christ. Show us his greatness, his glory. Help us to love him and adore him. Help us to show in the way that we live that, that Jesus is that pearl of great price. He is the great treasure. May Jesus be honored and magnified in our lives. We pray this in his name. Amen.